Pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of coming before my brothers and sisters who I love so much and sharing some of the things that you've been teaching me. We pray that uh, it wouldn't be about me, but it'd be about your majesty, your glory, Lord. Thank you for reaching into each one of our lives. If we can say that you are our Savior, calling us out of darkness and changing us causing us to be born again. Thank you so much for the work on the cross that makes all of this possible, Lord. And I do pray if there's someone either listening or uh, online or here tonight or today uh, that doesn't know you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be nudging and working in their hearts to convict them of their need for you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me see. What do we got here? Okay. <laughs> all righty. Okay. All right. So I think you've gotten to see now each. Uh, I start my messages off with, uh, we're going to look at a couple artists. But what I want to uh, start with uh, these verses here. And this is out of the Living Bible. I could take it out of a number of translations, but I happen to like this one. It's a little easier to understand. <clears throat> it says, the heavens are telling the glory of God... They are marvelous, a marvelous display of his craftsmanship. Day and night, they keep on telling about God. Without a sound or a word, silent in the skies, their messages or their message reads, reaches out to all the world. The sun lives in the heavens where God placed it, and it moves out across the skies, as radiant as a bridegroom going to his wedding, or as joyous as an athlete. Looking forward to a race, the sun crosses the heavens from one end to the other end, and nothing can hide from its heat. I think the operative word are the heavens are telling the glory of God. They are a marvelous display. And so the next thing I want to look at is this tale of, I'm going to call it two artists. And some of you may be familiar with the Hudson River School of Painting. Um, <clears throat> if you're not, let me try to explain what's going on here. Thomas Cole was the, the father of the Hudson River School. Um, if you get a chance to see some of their paintings, National Gallery has uh, a series of four of his uh, paintings called The Voyage of Life. Tremendous. And many of these paintings are quite large, uh, four feet by six feet, large uh, endeavors. So Thomas Cole was a believer, and he had a, um, I hate to use the word disciple, Frederick Church. Uh, he was also a, follow, a follower of Thomas Cole as well. He was also a believer. And what at this point in uh, American history, uh, they were looking to express their faith, but express it uh, in ways that weren't necessarily right in your face and they did it through painting this is known as the oxbow and it's called the oxbow because the an oxbow is when the river kind of goes down and kind of cuts back on itself and there's a couple things that are juxtaposed here uh on i guess your left my left uh is this stormy scene uh and the fury of nature and sometimes it's known as the sublime and then on the right-hand side is uh, the pastoral. And 
there are different interpretations of what this means, but one interpretation is, is man uh, having dominion over the earth, because God told uh, man, you know, subdue the earth, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth. Um, I'll show you another part of this picture here. <laughs> so he, Thomas Cole liked to hide things in the picture. And on the lower left, there he is as a little bit of a self-portrait, uh, showing himself painting this magnificent uh, scene. And it's going back, let me just back up a second. The heavens are telling the glory of God. They are a marvelous display of his craftsmanship. So the Hudson River School painters tried to bring to the public's knowledge uh, the majesty of God, what God has done in creation. And through that, point back to the creator and is in an act of worship as well. So here's Thomas Cole, self-portrait. And again, I said, he was a devout believer, and he liked to hide little things in there. And off to the right, you can see an umbrella and what looks like a little cross. And that is intentionally done uh, to kind of represent Christ in his, in his life. <clears throat> Go back here. This was not uh, at first noticed uh, it, uh, when it was painted, but eventually, I'm going to try to find, I, got, I think there used to be a little... A little uh, pointer. Oh, here it is. Hold on. Let me get this thing cooking here. I'm told I'm supposed to use this thing. Okay. Is that it? Does this... What does this do? Does this do something? I'm sorry, guys. Maybe it's this thing here. Well, okay. I can't make this work, so I'm not going to try. Uh, uh, in the mountains... And I don't have my other pointer here. In, in, the, in, the, in the background, in the mountains, you'll see some scars... In the, uh, in the trees. And it wasn't until some time later that uh, people realized that, uh, that it, looking at it this way, straight on, it's the Hebrew words for Noah. And so he's kind of hidden that in there. And I know some of you people looking who know Hebrew. Hmm, is Lou telling the truth? I have no idea. I don't read Hebrew. But all the scholars say those words represent Noah. So you can argue with them if you want. Uh, from above, looking at it from above, it's the word uh, Shaddai, and which means the Almighty. So Thomas Cole is trying to get people to see that this creation uh, is done by the Almighty. So he's recognizing that God is the, the creator. And, and part of that also means if he's the creator... He creates the rules as well. We are morally accountable to him. So let's look at another artist, and I'll try to put a bow on this. So this is another artist. This is Ansel uh, Adams. Uh, Ansel Adams uh, was probably, if not completely responsible for, uh, certainly played a big role in, in changing the perception of photography from a craft to fine art. And so this is one of his tremendous um, works. And this is also kind of like an oxbow. The problem with Ansel Adams, and he, by the way, he won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Very few people ever uh, received this. Uh, the problem with Ansel Adams, 
unlike Thomas Cole and Frederick Church, he didn't acknowledge the Creator. He was a materialist, and he ended up um, uh, elevating the creation and ignoring the Creator. Thomas Cole and Frederick Church, on the other hand, elevated the Creator, pointing to the creation. And so those are two things that are juxtaposed. Frederick Church, Thomas Cole knew who they were accountable to. Ansel Adams, unfortunately, did not. And it's a tragedy that he ended up, in many ways, worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. And so and then we'll look at this verse here. Uh, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so I guess my, my question to you and to each one of us, do we know the creator in a saving way? Uh, we're morally accountable to him. He's created an, an amazing world. Frederick Church and Thomas Cole knew the creator. They knew that they were sinners and they were debtors that could never pay that debt. They looked to Christ and what he had done on the cross for their salvation. My question to you and whoever else is watching Please don't be like whoops, Ansel Adams, who looks at creation and doesn't understand who the creator is and your responsibility towards the creator. Be like Thomas Cole, who sees the creation and says, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and they are a marvelous display of his craftsmanship. It's wonderful to look at nature. Be careful you don't replace nature with the creator. The creator made nature, but it is not transcendent. Only the creator is. Worship him and marvel at his creation. Okay, we're going to get out of this, and we're going to, I guess, escape from this, and i got to find the next part of today. All right. Uh, let's see. <laughs> All right. So we got this one here. So this is a four-part series uh, called Honey in the Bible. And uh, this, we're on week, uh, I don't know what week we are, but we're like halfway through the third part. Uh, I'd like to say by next, this coming Wednesday night, we'll be done with all of it. I, and I'm endeavoring to do that. We'll see how far we get. Okay, so this week here, it's highlighted here. Uh, We're talking about honey's many practical uses, superfood, temple uses, and uh, medical uses in ancient culture. I think we're going to kind of get on to that. I I did want to just stop here for a second. Uh, I said the the, uh, application and the reoccurring themes were God's promises, God's provision, and God's protection. Maybe I should state it a different way with the three W's. And the three W's are what, uh, so what, and now what. And what I've been trying to get to, it, the first part I needed to get to was the what. What kind of honey 
was in the lands that God promised. Was it only date honey? And we, I kind of established the fact that no, it was honey from domesticated honeybees. So uh, <clears throat> that was the what. So what? What does that mean? It means that God provided uh, that uh, 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 ecological system in the land of promise to sustain the Jews. They would go into a land that would uh, have uh, domesticated bees that would allow, as we discussed, uh, the proliferation of uh, flora and fauna. The other part we also looked at, and we're going to continue to look at, and maybe it's a, a shorthand way of talking about the medical properties of honey. In shorthand, when God uh, had the Jews go into uh, the promised land and there were honeybees there, he was giving them their own private pharmacy. Maybe that's a good way of explaining it because the medical properties of honey, and we're going to look at this a little bit more, are absolutely astounding. And so the three what's, the what, the three W's, the what, uh, the so what, and the now what. I think the now what is you worship God for his amazing creation. Don't misplace that it is God's creation. It is not God himself. So uh, those are maybe the three W's. That Why am I spending so much time on establishing the fact that God uh, gave the Jews uh, in the promised land domesticated bees for their benefit? Okay, so we're going to... I want to stop here because I, I put this little uh, um, graph up on Wednesday night, and it wasn't complete. So academic honey research. Now, where do I get a lot of these research papers? How do I find them? These are all medical in nature. And so the NIH is, has a clearinghouse called PubMed, and they're an aggregator of research papers worldwide. And so two things to note here. Uh, in, in 2022, there were a, around 952 research papers just done on the medical properties of, of honey. And you can see one of the points I wanted to make was it has ex exponentially taken off as people, as, a, as researchers, Teaching hospitals and other medical people have begun to realize how important uh, honey is. The ancients knew this, by the way, and that information had been lost. I think last week we looked at the lost wax method, and the lost wax method is it's kind of a has a double meaning. One is when you when you uh, use the lost wax process, the wax uh, comes out. And you can then do your casting. The other thing about the lost wax process is, believe it or not, the ancients knew it. And then that practice was lost for like 1,500 years. It wasn't until the Renaissance where the Italians rediscovered the lost wax process. And so in some ways, <clears throat> the ancients knew about the medical properties, although not as sophisticated as we know now. They didn't understand biology and bacteria and other things like Louis Pasteur understood. But they did know that honey would cure things, okay? So the question is, why is 2023 lower than 2022? Well, first of all, 2023 is not over with yet. Uh, and secondly, uh, looking at other papers and other topics within this uh, PubMed, they tend to go up and down. So don't read too much other than there's been a surge 
uh, in, in uh, research on honey. And this is a little factoid. Worldwide, there are around uh, 50,000 uh, scientific research journals. And every year, around 5 million papers are published. And so if you're in academia or if you're at a research lab and you're, uh, in you're engaged in research, you're pulling from those papers as a basis to try to, you know, uh, further along your research and <laughs> you're trying to publish too, if you can, uh, as well. And yeah, I just, that was a bit of house housekeeping here for this. So I think we, we looked at some of these things. For, you, for those of you who weren't here, uh, you can read the, uh, the title. Honey, a single foodstuff comprises many drugs. I'm not going to go back into it. Uh, um, the nutritional values are, uh, of honey and its contribution to health and wealth. Uh, honey, uh, cardiovascular risk factors, and it helps with all that. Uh, <laughs> this was a, the effects of honey uh, on rats and not having them be anxious and it prevented uh, them getting dementia in their old age and may have the same to do with uh, uh, humans as well. And then we looked at John the Baptist. He ate uh, locusts, which are also known as grasshoppers, and wild honey, and those things could sustain you. So the, uh, we know the Bible is true. This is just another way of getting at like, yes, it's not a fairy tale. You could live on these two things. Okay, and we looked at temple uses, things like that. Uh, what I wanted to get to now is this area here. Apiculture in the Hittite cuneiform text. So the land that the, um, the Israelites were going into had like seven different nations. Hittites and Canaanites, they were closely associated. And so what this paper uh, intends to do is, is look at the existing um, historical archaeological information contained in the cuneiform text to give you an idea of what the Israelites were walking into. And so this is the abstract from that paper. Uh, and it says here, the Hittite cuneiform text dated to the second millennium B.C., contains some of the earliest information about the production of honey as an economic product. Remember, the Hittites and the Canaanites, they're in that promised land. That, that, that is where the Israelites are headed. They're going into that land. They're going to inherit these beehives. Uh, and its consumption in daily life, as well as the uh, theological perception of honeybees. Now, this is kind of important. According to laws, honey is a commercial product and is traded at value, according to these texts, these cuneiform texts. In addition, apiculture, which is, um, apiculture is the, uh, the husband, husbandship of bees. So if you're, a, uh, if you're a dairy farmer, you're a dairy farmer. If you're, uh, if you're maintaining uh, vines, it's viviculture, I think. And if you're maintaining uh, beehives, it's apiculture. In addition, apiculture is a profession with expert knowledge and the right of ownership of the honeybee colony and the hive associated with its profession is legally protected. So there were all kinds of laws. You couldn't steal people's beehives e even back then. And this is where it gets a little interesting. The aromatic properties of honey are also known. In this context, it is included in the mixtures used for incense and rituals 
Now, this is what the Jews were walking into. And when we looked at the altar, let me just back up. Uh, I'm going to back up here. So this is an altar that was found at Tel Rehov in the area that Canaanites and Hittites had been living. The Israelites come in, 10th century BC, kick them out. Unfortunately, they adopt some of those pagan practices, including these incense rituals, among others. Okay, so we'll go back to this here. Uh, uh, also in rituals, some of the qualities were used in analogical spells, in mythological uh, and religious texts. The honeybee is a creature that brings abundance and fertility in spring. So again, what, what has happened is without um, specific revelation, the scriptures, people revert to worshiping the creation rather than the creator because the creation looks so powerful. Like, that's why they worship the sun god. Wow, that looks so powerful. You're missing the point is that there was a creator that made the sun and there was also a creator that made the honeybee. But in this culture here that the Jews are walking into, and actually, remember, we talked about, for those of you who were here and, uh, and for those who weren't, I'll just say, all of the pharaohs in Egypt, uh, I think there were 29 of them, always identify themselves as by two things. One was the papyrus plant, which gave the world paper. Without that, the world would have not had any paper until around the time of Christ when the Chinese invented paper. Prior to that, it was the papyrus plant turned into uh, what we think of papyrus sheets you could write on. And the second thing that all the pharaohs were known as by uh, on their cartouche, which was a graphical representation of who the pharaohs were, were the honeybees. So the honeybee played a prominent role in lots of these cultures that the Jews found themselves in, in the Egyptian culture and also in the Canaanite and Hittite culture. So the honeybee is a creature that brings abundance and fertility in spring. In this context, it plays an important role in myths of finding the disappearing gods and the symbol of fertility. And I'm going to explain what that is. At the same time, it represents fertility, peace, reconciliation as a creature associated with the sun goddess of the earth and other symbols of fertility. Ra, the um, Egyptian god of the sun, its tears were, were uh, thought to be honey. People thought that, that honey were actually the tears of, of the sun god. So people got themselves all turned around. Now, um, let me look here. Okay, uh, so what is this myth of the disappearing gods? The myth of the disappearing gods and why it's so important was that somehow the Canaanite and Hittite god uh, got lost and couldn't be found. And the, that god uh, would bring fertility and plenty and other things like that into their culture. So they had to try to find that god. And so what they did, according to the myth, of course, it's all myth, right? We're not saying any of this is true, but this is what they believed. Uh, they tasked the honeybee. So you are so important. You've got to find the God because we can't find him. And go out and search high and low for the God that has disappeared because we need that God to come back 
so that we'll have fertile, uh, fertile areas. I mean, fertility was so important. I mean, this is another one of these little sh fertility shrines. These would be in a household. This was found at Tel Roth. This was the stuff that the Jews, when they took over that area, were walking into. So they conquer the people, they kick them out of their houses, and what do they find? They find some of this nonsense with little idols inside here, okay? That all had to do with fertility. So back to here. So uh, the Canaanite and the Hittite god has disappeared. They send the bee out and says, if, here's what you need to do. When you find him, uh, go and sting him and make him come back to us. Uh, I, I know we laugh at this, but without the scriptures, you can come up with all kinds of cockamamie ideas, right? So they send the bee out, uh, who is, if nothing else, the, 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 uh, the creature, he, that creature is going to go and say, he's going to sting the, the, uh, the God that made him and make him come back and start making their area uh, fertile again. So this is some of the kind of the nonsense that they were walking, them, uh, uh, walking into. Now, here's a couple other little rituals. This is just for, like for historical background, and then I'll put a bow on this, okay? On this particular, where are you going with this, Lou? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this is one of the rituals that also was uh, involved in the Canaanite and Hittite worship. In a ritual to rid a newborn baby of a curse, the old woman takes ale bread, puts it on the baby's tongue, lubricates her, ling her, lings, <laughs> her limbs with melted butter, and then she completely wipes uh, his tongue with honey. See, honey is fit, you know, it's, it's, the problem with honey and why God said, be very careful how you use it. I've given you honey. I don't want to see it on the altar because the cultures you're displacing use this in religious ways. Don't act like they, they're acting because they've got the whole thing turned upside down, okay? So she wipes the little baby's tongue with honey. After asking the gods to restore the baby's health, the old woman spits into her mouth twice. I don't know what she thinks she's going to do. Hopefully she thinks the baby's going to come back. In this other particular ritual, uh, which was applied for the treatment of spiritually polluted and physically ill people, here you go again. <laughs> honey comes back into to the place. Uh, uh, honey, olive oil, figs, raisins, olives were placed in this special pot, which was placed on the sacrificial table to appears, appease the angry God. So once again, you can see, you know, in, why did God say, I don't, I, I've given you honey. It's a great thing, but don't put it on the altar. It's, these are for some of the reasons here. And then finally, just a little quote here. The myths of the disappearing God and the bee has an important role in finding the gods whose disappearance has disrupted the order of nature. So they send the bee out to try to find this God. So do, does our God disappear? This is the point. Our God, we not, our God is not, has not disappeared. If anything, he's looking for us. He's there, right? He's always there. And I'm just going to put a bow on this particular one. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. We don't have to go send a bee out to try to find our God. Our God has not run away. It sets this, so the juxtaposition between uh, paganism with no information other than the physical world they can see around them, they turn into uh, kind of bizarre uh, ways of behaving. All right, so... I did want to look at some of the medical uses in ancient culture and today.
So this one here is, uh, this is in the, uh, the, uh, the, the Royal Society of Medicine. This came out of uh, London. Uh, it's somewhat old, 89, but just the same. It was a good article. And this is kind of my synthesis of this. Honey, a remedy, a remedy rediscovered. Honey has had a value placed in traditional medicine for centuries. The prescription for a standard wound solve discovered in the Smith papyrus, an Egyptian text dating from between 2600 and 2200 BC, calls for a mixture of these MRTH. That's the Egyptian, ancient Egyptian word. And uh, I think this particular one had a bunch of the hieroglyphics that are in there. And some people who are Egyptologists could understand that. Anyhow, they translate it, grease, honey, lint, and fiber as transliterated from the hieroglyphic symbols. The ancient Egyptians, Assyrians, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans employed honey for wound dresses, wound and diseases of the gut. Honey was the most popular Egyptian drug being mentioned 500 times in 900 remedies. Remember I said that when God gave the uh, Israelites that land flowing with milk and bee honey, he was giving them their own CVS because there were so many things that honey could legitimately be used for. Uh, it, years ago, maybe it was a, a little bit of quackery, but it's no longer that, and I'll continue to prove that point. Okay, so this, is a, uh, this was done, yeah, 2009. Um, I think this is the... Uh, and, uh, I think uh, the Journal of Ant, uh, Anti-Infection Drug Discoveries. I think that's what this, this particular journal is. Okay, so here was the abstract from this one here. <clears throat> Honey and other bee products were subjected to laboratory and clinical investigations during the past few decades, but the most remarkable discovery was their antibacterial activity. Honey has been used since the ancient times for the treatment of some diseases and for the healing of wounds. But its use as an anti-infective agent was suspended, this is kind of interesting, by modern dressings and antibiotic therapy. However, the emergence of antibiotic, and this is so interesting here, <laughs> however, the emergence of antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria has confounded the current use of antibiotic therapy, leading to a re-examination of former remedies. Honey, propolis, now let me explain what propolis is. Uh, so uh, in a beehive, you'll have honey and you'll have uh, pollen, but the bees go around to trees and um, no one's quite sure how they do it. But from tree saps and other things, they bring back to the hive this incredibly sticky glue and they glue the hives shut pretty much. So a beekeeper, when a beekeeper goes to work on a hive, he or she has two tools. One is the smoker. You're all familiar with the smoker. The other thing is called a hive tool. It's like um, a, um, a scraper and a wedge where you have to kind of get it in between the boxes and pry them apart because they're all glued together because uh, the bees don't like any little gaps with this thing propolis. And propolis is still not a very well understood compound. Royal jelly, <clears throat> what royal jelly is, um, so when the queen lays an egg, if the, work, if, the, if the girl nurse bees decide 
uh, they need another queen, or if somehow the queen has died, they have three days with which to take uh, honey from the, the beehive, mix it with certain enzymes to create something known as royal jelly, and they'll feed that little baby bee royal jelly. And guess what, what happens if you give the baby bee royal jelly rather than the normal food? Royal jelly creates a queen. So that's the thing with royal jelly. Some people think it has magical properties and they harvest it. Okay, so honey propolis, royal jelly, and bee venom have a strong antibacterial activity. Even antibiotic risk, uh, resistance strains, such as the epidemic strains of methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA, and this other one, VRE, have been found to be sensitive to honey as an antibiotic-sensitive strains of the same species. In other words, even though MRSA gets resistant to uh, it, the typical oxacillin, I think, and methicillin, they're finding that it's not resistant to honey. So these, the man-made antibiotics, it seems like these uh, bacteria outsmart them, but they're not able to outsmart honey, which is a really interesting thing and potentially a very important thing. Okay, so this next one here, and we, we just have a couple more, but they're, they're, they're interesting to look at. The reason I look at this is in all of these things, I'm looking at what God has created and I'm saying, we have an amazing creator, an amazing creator. I don't worship the bee. I worship the, the God who made the bee and that, and that ought to uh, do this. Okay, that's good. Something popped up over there, but I don't need that. Okay, so honey has been used as a wound dressing for thousands of years, but only in more recent times has scientific explanation become available for its effectiveness. It is now realized that honey is a biologic wound dressing with multiple bioactivities that work in concert to expedite the healing process. The physical properties of honey also expedite the healing process this is kind of a strange way of writing this here. Uh, okay, I didn't write this abstract, by the way. The physical properties of honey also expedite the healing process. Oh, its acidity increases the release of oxygen from the hemoglobin, thereby making the wound environment less favorable for the activity of destructive protoses. Now, I know we have some nurses in here, and they know what this means, and I don't know what this means, other than it's telling me it's uh, uh, battling the infection and the high osmolarity of honey draws fluid out of the wound, which I do know about that, the wound bed to create an outflow of lymph as occurs with negative pressure wound therapy. Honey has a broad spectrum antibacterial activity. There is much more variation in potency between different honeys. Yes. So one of the things, uh, and we won't get to it today, but there's another article that talks about, uh, I guess, hydrogen peroxide, uh, it can be used to treat infections and wounds and things like that, but it very quickly loses its potency. And what they have found, and this, uh, this idea of it, its acidity increases the release of oxygen, um, they have found that honey will produce hydrogen peroxide when it's put in contact with a wound. And it's, I looked at it as a layman, like um, uh, uh, vinegar and baking soda, you know, how it would have this chemical reaction. There's something like that going on with honey and a wound. And the, th the wonderful thing about honey is that reaction 
stays active for a number of hours. So you don't have to keep putting it on like you would daubing on hydrogen peroxide. You can put that on uh, on an open wound, and that activity will continue on. And it has to do with the chemical constituents of honey. Uh, well, let me get this out of here. Hold on. I got something that popped up over here. It doesn't belong here. All right, let me get that out. Okay, let's see. What is this one here? Uh, am I going down? How come this doesn't... Uh, oh, you know, let's see. Hold on. Uh, I don't want to do this. Oops. Got myself all goofed up here. Okay, we're almost done with this one. Okay. Hmm. Okay, this is the Journal of Lower Extremity Wounds. I mean, there's so many different journals. I mean, they're so pinpointed. So you have lower extremity wounds, upper extremity wounds. Uh, the evidence supporting the use of honey as a wound dressing. Okay, so what is the abstract here? <clears throat> Some clinicians are under the impression that there's little or no evidence to support the use of honey as a wound dressing. To allow sound decisions to be made, this... A uh, seminar article has covered various reports that have been published on clinical usage of honey. Positive findings on honey in wound care have been reported for 17 randomized controlled trials involving a total of 1,965 participants in five clinical trials of other forms involving 97 participants treated with honey. The effectiveness of honey in assisting wound healing has also been demonstrated in 16 trials. So they're kind of like summing up at all 533 wounds on experimental animals. <clears throat> One of the reasons they use this for animals, by the way, I'm learning this, is you've heard of this thing, uh, the placebo effect. <clears throat> and so if you're, if you're doing clinical trials on humans, you have to also introduce placebos, which are like a fake thing, okay? It looks like the pill, or it looks like the injection, but there's actually nothing to it. But for animals, you don't need to do placebos, placebos, because animals don't have cognition to say, oh, well, maybe that pill is helping me, so I'm going to pretend I get healthy. Animals can't do that. So they don't need to do placebos with animals, only with, with humans, thinking humans, okay? So, uh, as opposed to non-thinking humans. <laughs> So, okay. All right, fine. So there's also a large amount. There are some non-thinking humans, I think, we're running into. There's also a large amount of evidence in the form of case studies that have been reported. It has been shown to give good results on a wide, variety, wide range of types of wounds. Therefore, it is mystifying that there appears to be a lack of universal acceptance of honey as a wound dressing. It is recommended that clinicians look for the clinical evidence that supports the use of other wound care products to compare with the evidence that exists for honey. So it's kind of uh, an admonition, don't get away from honey. And we'll look at on, the, on, the, on number four, there's something like 20 or so FDA-approved honey wound dressings now. So it's not just something you go to the health food store, hey, take these herbs and some of this stuff, okay? It's moved into... Uh, I'm going to call it legitimacy. All right, so conclusion here. All right, so <clears throat> Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures, and that is certainly true. And so I just will conclude this section here. Uh, these are my words. The Lord has given us the honeybee, and with it a superfood that has amazing medical properties that are still being discovered. Pagan culture is worshipped and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The honeybee provides pollination and thus an abundance of food and provides wax that is used in numerous ways 
necessary for an advanced society. Okay, so we're, we're done with number three. And if I can get out of here, we're going to start on number four, which we will not finish today, but we will finish uh, on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. So it's nice. You should come out on Wednesday, you folks who don't come out, okay? Everyone, we have very friendly people here on Wednesday, on Wednesday night, <laughs> okay? So you really want to come out, all right? Honey in the Bible, this is uh, number four, okay? Hmm. All right, so now we got this one here. All right. So, okay, we got that. Okay, so we're going to look at three different areas, honey and the Word of God. And that, you know, you could, I could, <laughs> I suppose I could have just started right there and dispensed with all the rest, but I wanted to kind of take us through the other parts, the other I'm going to call it nuts and bolts of honey. This is one of the verses about honey and the Word of God. The word, honey is great. The Word of God's even better, okay? So let me, let me uh, and we're going to explore that. So it's delicious, it's nutritious, it's cleansing and healing, okay? Now let's see. All right, so I got this kind of cluttered up with things. Uh, God's promises, His provision, His protection. When God gave the Israelites the promised land, He promised them that. It would be a land flowing with milk and honey, and it was. We can trust God, and this, this is something you can apply to your life all of God's promises. If he promises, it's going to happen. Uh, if he says, if you place your faith in Christ, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's a promise. That's not like, well, it might happen. And it's a promise. You can count on that. And if you have not placed your faith in Christ, you need to do that. And maybe today, uh, I was talking to uh, some friends last night, and one of them uh, had been in church their whole life. Uh, maybe like some of you younger guys or gals. And it wasn't until they were, I don't know, maybe 19 or 20, that they were hearing every day, every Sunday, the gospel invitation. It wasn't until one day it all made sense. And I think if you look at your life, I know for me, my brother witnessed to me for two years, beat me over the head with the Bible, almost. Uh, I couldn't understand what he was talking about. One day it made sense. And maybe for you guys, gals, one day it made sense. Maybe today is the day it all makes sense. That you are a sinner and Christ gave his life as a substitute for you. I have this little uh, um, verse here. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God as profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so when we look at uh, the Word of God, how important it is, and then there's a metaphor between the Word of God and honey. And we see that metaphor up here where, you know, in Psalm 19, the law of law is perfect, refreshing the soul. We go all the way down. And then the psalmist says, they're more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And we, we know... Uh, gold is important. And the psalmist chose to also say, and oh, by the way, they're even better than the sweetness of honey and all that implies, okay? So I said here, the sweet, test of, uh, sweet taste of honey is used as a metaphor for how sweet the word of God is to read, to meditate on, to memorize and act on it. The three, first three things, read, meditate, and memorize 
Those are all good things. The question I have to ask myself, and you have to ask yourself, are we acting on what we're reading? It's one thing to read. You can read and read and read. But are you acting on it? Is it changing your life? Are you reading and then just walking away and acting like the old man, the old woman, and not acting like the person made in the image of God, living a Christ-like life? So I said there's at least four things that honey, uh, when you think about the sweetness of honey and things that taste sweet, it's delicious, nutritious, cleansing, excuse me, and healing. So we'll look at, we have a little time to look at maybe the first one. Okay, so here's the, here's the first verse we'll look at. By the way, there's two uh, words, uh, Hebrew words for sweet. Uh, this molots, it means to be smooth. Even though the translators say sweet, it actually means to be smooth. There's another word here, I'll just pop over here, mothok, which actually does mean sweet. So in Psalm 19, it says they're sweeter than honey. And that word, mothok, however you pronounce that, does mean sweet. But here are the translators, and you can look at your translation here. Sweet is actually this other word, and maybe they're related, I don't know, I'm not a Hebrew guy, uh, to be smooth, and maybe figuratively to be sweet. So we can think about these words here that the psalmist has have given us. Oh Lord, oh, excuse me, oh how I love your law. And when it's talking about the law, it's not just talking about the Mosaic law, it's talking about all of God's word. It is what I think about through all the day. Well, my question is, am I thinking about the Word of God during the day? Um, or am I thinking about something else? Now, obviously, listen, I was an engineer. I couldn't be, if I had to do a bunch of calculations, yeah, I got to get those calculations right. The thing's going to fall down or blow up or whatever, right? So I got to do that. Yeah, I got to concentrate on that stuff. But there's all kinds of other times in your brain, like I'm going to call it fill in the gap time. What are you thinking about? Right? Are you reading the Word of God? Um, your Word makes me wiser than those who hate me, for it is always with me. Do you have people who hate you? I have people who hate me. They do. When I was, I was started off as a technician, uh, you know, as a young man, I decided I wanted to go to college. Let me tell you what: if you want to break out from the pack, you'll get a lot of hate. I had all kinds of people. Who do you think you are, Lou? You're one of us. Why should you go to college? All kinds of things like that. I was a Christian. And I knew, I think the Lord wanted me to go to college and use my gifts. Um, and I continue to use the gifts that God has given me. Your word makes me wiser than those who hate me. It's always with me. I guess the other thing it might be is, how do you, how do you respond to people who hate you? There's one of the Proverbs, it's one of my favorite Proverbs. It basically says, the fire will die down if you don't put any more sticks on it. And we can get ourselves in conflict, right, uh, with people who don't like us. And guess what? We'll throw a stick on the fire. Psh, starts up again, right? The Proverbs says, don't throw any more sticks on there. If you have someone who doesn't like you, don't. Just don't keep tickling it, right? Just leave it alone. That's just one example of how the Word of God can make you wiser than those who hate you. Don't give them the time. I have better understanding than all my teachers because I think about your law. Uh, this one here. Um, when I was a kid, and I don't know if they still do it, in grammar school, the teacher, you had your book, your mathematical book, and the teacher had her mathematical book. 
And you, in her mathematical book or whatever book she was teaching out of was different than yours. Why? Because in the back, there were all the answers, right? Once in a while, I got to see the teacher's book. No wonder she's so smart. She has the answers, right? <laughs> okay? So here's what I would say about Christians. You have the answers. This Bible gives you the answers for life, okay? And how to conduct yourself. That's how it can make you smarter. You have the answers. There's no reason for Christians to be flopping around unsuccessful in life. Uh, because, and I, listen, it's not a health, wealth, prosperity thing. I'm just saying keeping yourself from doing dumb things. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, and the Bible can help you do that. Read the word of God, okay? Uh, I have better understanding than those who are old because I obey your word. Listen, we should... Um, Respect our elders. There's no question about that. People who've uh, lived a good, long life. My mother's 90. She lived through the Second World War. If you meet people who lived through the Second World War, that was something like we've never seen in our country before. Uh, they have some wisdom, okay? But it, the psalmist is telling us, I have better understanding than those who are old because I obey your word. So, yes, we should honor our uh, elderly people. But the word of God can give you understanding past your age. One of the things that older people have, and, and I'm going to include myself, is I've learned how not to do it, right? By very painful lessons. Uh, you don't always have to learn that way. You know, you don't have to step on the rake and smack yourself in the face to say, yeah, that wasn't a good idea. And, and that's, an, that's kind of like a, a word picture there. But the word of God can help you avoid doing dumb things and can also help you do the right thing. We always look in the negative. Um, I, I always say that God wants me to uh, say um, no to the things I want to say yes to. God wants me to say no to the things I want to say yes to. And he wants me to say yes to the things I want to say no to. So think about that. Say no to the things you want to say yes to. And you can think about what things would I like to say yes to. Well, those might be some things you shouldn't do. And the, uh, the word of God tells you to say no to the things you want to say yes to. No one does, no one sins. Uh, sin feels great. If it didn't feel great, we wouldn't do it. Uh, and so it feels good sometimes to do that. Should we do it? No, but that is appealing to our old man. The Spirit wants us to say no to the things we want to say yes to and wants us to say yes to the things we want to say no to. What things do we want to say no to? Well, how about uh, ministry, other types of opportunities, helping people? You can think of all the things that, I'm too busy, I can't do it. God wants you to say yes to the things you want to say no to. I have kept my feet from every sinful way so I may keep your word. Yeah, I mean, you might think you should turn that around, but be careful because uh, you, <laughs> you can ruin your reputation in a heartbeat, and then it's very difficult to recover from that. I have not turned from your law, for you yourself have taught me. Uh, I think... Sometimes we do not realize that the Bible we hold in our hands are literally the Word of God. And it's almost mind-boggling to think that. We say, oh, it's the Word of God, it's the Word of God, it's the Word of God. This God who created the entire cosmos has given us His Word. Not just someone's uh, interpretation of that, it's, it's actually the Word of God. It's the inspired Word of God. And so 
the, the last verse is, how sweet is your word to my taste? It's sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's smooth. Read the word of God. It'll go down easy. Okay, so this one here, it's delicious, and we're going to end with this because i got two minutes left, see, on this little thing here. And i got my little red thing here. This is helpful for me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a countdown clock, so I know when I'm, I should stop. The law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul. And, man, we need that more than ever. There are so many people who are uptight and worried because the world seems to be just going nuts. It refreshes your soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. They make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. Read the word of God. Spend time in it. The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. In other words, it helps you see what is really out there so you're not stumbling around in darkness. The fear of the Lord is pure and it endures forever. The word of God is timeless. The same word that was given to the apostles, the disciples, that affected their lives and challenged them to say no to the things they wanted to say yes to and say yes to the things they wanted to say no to is the same word that we get to read. No different. The decrees of the Lord are firm. Yes, they're not elastic. There are some things that are not negotiable, right? They're firm. It doesn't change. Sin is still sin. And you can say, well, you know, nowadays that's not sin anymore. I don't know. If it's sin, it's still sin. If it was sin back then, it's, uh, it's sin today. We'll just finish up with this one here. Uh, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold and much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey. And honey from the honeycomb. All right, so uh, I will see you folks, Lord willing, this Wednesday. And we can all finish this together, okay? Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord for an opportunity to share uh, what you've been teaching. Help us to say uh, yes to the things we want to say no to. And help us to say no to the things we want to say yes to. Thank you that you're a good, loving, forgiving God, that you're made a way by what Christ did on the cross for us. Thank you, dear Father. In Christ's name, amen.